John Humphrey Noyes and His Bible Communists The Beginnings by B. B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was into this atmosphere that John Humphrey Noyes was plunged by his conversion in August 1831. He was an opinionated, self assertive young man of twenty who had been graduated from Dartmouth College the year before, 1830, and meantime had been studying law in his brother-in-law's office at Putney, where the family had been resident since 1823. The great revival of 1831 seems fairly to have rushed him off his feet, and he took his conversion hard, yielding with difficulty, but when he yielded, he yielded altogether he himself sums up what happened in a rapid sentence which is no more rapid however than the rush of the events it describes the great finney revival found him he says of himself at twenty years of age a college graduate studying law and sent him to study divinity first at andover afterwards at new haven he entered the seminary at andover four weeks after his conversion and in less than three months after it he had placed himself at the disposal of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. But nothing that organized Christianity could offer could satisfy his morbid appetite for excitement, and in a little more than two years more he had turned his back upon it all, and was seeking thrills along a new path. He has himself described for us the stages of his progress. After a painful process of conviction, in which the conquest of my aversion to becoming a minister was one of the critical points, it is thus that he describes his conversion, I submitted to God and obtained spiritual peace. With much joy and zeal, I immediately devoted myself to the study of the scriptures and to religious testimony in private and public. The year of 1831 was distinguished as the year of revivals. New measures, protracted meetings, and New York evangelists had just entered New England, and the whole spirit of the people was fermenting with religious excitement. The millennium was supposed to be very near. I fully entered into the enthusiasm of the time, and seeing no reason why backsliding should be expected, or why the revival spirit might not be maintained in its full vigor permanently, I determined with all my inward strength to be a young convert in zeal and simplicity for ever my heart was fixed on the millennium and i resolved to live or die for it four weeks after my conversion i went to andover and was admitted to the theological seminary this was a typical conversion of the revival of excitement order issuing not so much in sound religion as in restless activities and filling his mind only with strong delusions in this case chiliastic delusions which prepare it for everything except sane religious development it is interesting to observe that, as he tells us more than once, most of those who followed him in his further vagaries had begun with him in these. Most of those, he says, writing in 1847, who have become perfectionists, he means the term in the narrow sense in which it describes only his own followers, within the last ten years have previously been converts and labourers in such revivals, that is to say, had been victims as he was of the revival of excitement of course no one in his inflamed state of mind could find satisfaction at andover the students there were merely christians and seemed to him from his exalted point of view a good deal less than what christians should be in the censoriousness which naturally accompanies such exaltation of spirit he accuses them of indifference levity jealousy sensuality of everything which as christians they ought not to be 
only in a few who were touched with the enthusiasm of missions lyman munson tracy justin perkins did he find any congeniality of companionship he was taken into a secret society which they maintained for mutual improvement and learned from it a method of government by criticism which he afterwards employed in his communistic establishment the classroom instruction also was not wholly without effect upon him in particular moses stuart's exegesis of the seventh chapter of romans and of the twenty-fourth chapter of matthew supplied him with points of departure from which he afterward advanced to the two hinges on which his whole system turned he remained at andover however only the single session of eighteen thirty one to eighteen thirty two the autumn of eighteen thirty two found him at the divinity school at newhaven his motive for making the change he tells us was that at yale he could devote a greater part of his time to his favourite study of the bible by which he appears to mean that the classroom work at yale was less exigent than at andover in any case he preferred to prosecute his study of the bible without rather than under the direction of his teacher i attended lectures daily he writes and studied sufficiently to be prepared for examination but my mind was chiefly distracted with my heart to the simple treasures of the bible i went through the epistles of paul again and again as i had gone through the evangelists at andover and in the latter part of the time during which he was at yale when i had begun to exercise myself in preaching i was in the habit of preparing the matter of every sermon by reading the whole new testament through with reference to the subject i had chosen he also found time for many external activities he worked among the negroes of the town and took part in the organization of one of the earliest anti-slavery societies in this country he even became instrumental in building up a struggling church there were about a dozen revivalists in the city he says and their fervor attracted him for says he i was burning with the same zeal which i found in them but nowhere else in the city for the conversion of souls as they grew in number they had organized themselves as the free church and on noise's recommendation they now invited james boyle to preach to them he was thus provided with church associations of the hottest revivalistic character these new associations were not calculated to moderate noise's fanatical tendencies the censoriousness which he had exhibited towards his fellow students at andover he now turned upon christendom at large how many real christians are there in christendom he asked himself and he felt constrained to answer not many from his higher vantage ground he looked out upon christianity as exhibited in the churches and found it fatally wanting his missionary zeal naturally cooled with all christendom lying in the evil one what were the heathen to him he saw his task now in the christianizing of nominal christians the lost condition not of the heathen but of christians was heavy on his heart and now his sedulous study of the bible in careful seclusion from his natural advisers began to bear fruit though he did not get so far away from moses stuart as to impress us with the originality of his thought in the summer after his first year at yale the summer of eighteen thirty three he settled it with himself that our lord's second advent had already taken place that it took place in fact within a generation of his death we say he settled it with himself for his confidence in his new conclusion was characteristically perfect i no longer conjectured or believed in the inferior sense of these words he says but i knew that the time appointed for the second advent was within one generation from the time of christ's personal ministry oddly enough he appears to have been led to this conclusion chiefly by john twenty one twenty two 
if i will that he tarry till i come what is that to thee here said he is an intimation by christ himself that john will live till his second coming the bible is not a book of riddles its hidden treasures are accessible to those who make the spirit of truth their guide and how is it possible to reconcile this intimation with the accepted theory that christ's second coming is yet future if we are inclined to wonder a little at the mental struggles which noise seems to have undergone in reaching this conclusion we should remind ourselves that it involved a very considerable revolution of thought for him and revolutions of thought were not easy for noise he had hitherto been we must remember a hot chilliest looking for the second coming not only in the future but in the immediate future and expecting from it everything he was setting his hopes upon in his inflamed fancy it was a great wrench to transfer this second coming back into the distant past though as we shall see he managed to soften the blow by preserving his chiliastic hopes for the impending future and carrying only the second coming itself back into the past in august of this same summer eighteen thirty three he was licensed to preach by the new haven west association and spent the six weeks that intervened before the reopening of the seminary in the autumn preaching in a little church in north salem new york he was as yet not a perfectionist only a fanatical chiliastic revivalist if we can use the word only in such a connection but perfectionism did not lie outside the horizon of his vision those new york evangelists who broke their way into new england in eighteen thirty one to whom he also had fallen a victim and james boyle among the others who had been a methodist and whom he had brought to new haven where he had formed with him a close intimacy came from a region ploughed and harrowed by perfectionism and can scarcely have been ignorant of it they may even have in their own persons borne more or less of its scars he found also on his return to the seminary some zealous young men newly entered who spurred him on to higher attainments in holiness he diligently read such works as the memoirs of james brainerd taylor and wesley's tract on christian perfection he naturally found himself therefore through the autumn and early winter months making steady and accelerating progression toward perfect holiness no lower attainment would satisfy him and he became ever more and more eager to reach the goal this effort in the end absorbed all his energies at last the blessing came and he received his second conversion he writes to his mother the burden of christian perfection accumulated upon my soul until i determined to give myself no rest while the possibility of the attainment of it remained doubtful at last the lord met me with the same promise that gave peace to my soul when first i came out of egypt if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the lord jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that god hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved by faith i took the proffered boon of eternal life god's spirit sealed the act and the blood of christ cleansed me from all sin his second conversion consisted then in his pressing the promise of salvation the assurance of cleansing from all sin into a promise and assurance that the salvation the cleansing shall be completed as soon as begun consuming no time and running through no process to the promised and assured end the parallel between his first and second conversions was complete not only were both accomplished through the instrumentality of a single text understood partly then perfectly now but in both cases alike he was driven by his temperament at once into publicity the atmosphere of propaganda was his vital breath he gave not a moment to meditation testing ripening as on his first conversion he tells us that he immediately devoted himself 
along with the study of scripture to religious testimony in private and public so now on the evening of the very day of his second conversion he preached at the free church on the text he that committeth sin is of the devil and proclaimed the doctrine of perfect holiness how such a man would do it from such a text we can well imagine the next morning we are availing ourselves now of w a heinz's narrative a theological student who heard the discourse of the previous evening came to labour with him and asked him directly don't you commit sin the answer was an unequivocal no the man stared as though a thunderbolt had fallen before him and repeated his question and got the same answer within a few hours word was passed through the college and city noise says he is perfect and immediately afterwards it was reported that noise is crazy there is no mention made of noise's account of his second conversion of any influences working on him in that direction from without we have seen that there cannot have failed to be such noise himself however speaks in this connection only of his study of perfectionist literature of the wesleyan school to which no doubt we must hence give much of the credit of the change in his views the perfectionism which he adopted however when he worked himself through was not specifically wesleyan in type but was rather of that mystical kind which was at the time prevalent in western and central new york as there was nothing in noise's previous intellectual history to prepare us for this particular mode of thinking we naturally conjecture that he must have derived it from the new york men channels of communication with whom as we have seen existed in abundance a writer of the time who shows himself in general very familiar with what was going on tells us explicitly that he owed his indoctrination into perfectionism to one of the young men who had gone astray in e n kirk's school at albany chauncey e dutton we read had breathed the afflatus in eighteen thirty three he left albany and entered the theological department at new haven connecticut here he infused the new enthusiasm into john h noyes a young man of putney vermont with whom he had become familiar thus began the logos of new haven perfectionism the date is right and the general circumstances it was on his return to new haven in the autumn of eighteen thirty three noise himself tells us that he found a number of zealous young men just entering the seminary to whose constant fellowship and conversation he attributes along with the wesleyan literature which he read his progress towards holiness the difficulty lies in the absence of the name of dutton from the general catalogue of the new haven divinity school and indeed from that of the university also it may be of course that a mistake has been made only in connecting dutton with the institution as a pupil there is no doubt that he was in new haven not far from this time propagating his perfectionist faith we find him there for instance only a couple of years or so later on this errand and noise was in close intercourse with him a year earlier in brimfield the tone of noise's reference both to him and to his companion in these ministries simon lovett however leaves an impression that this intercourse with them belongs rather to eighteen thirty five and later than to eighteen thirty three to eighteen thirty four and we can scarcely avoid the feeling that he means us to gather that he was self-converted to his perfectionism lyman h atwater who was a fellow-student of the next lower class with noise at yale seems to think of him merely as one of the pelagianizing perfectionists who sprang up in his student days at new haven under the teaching of nathaniel w taylor he is giving a general account of the rise of this class of perfectionists and permits himself this bit of personal reminiscence 
when we were students of theology, a little coterie becoming wiser than their teachers or fellow students, strained the doctrine of ability beyond the scope contended for and admitted by its most eminent champions, to the length of maintaining not only that all men can, but that some do reach sinless perfection in this life, of which, so far as students were concerned, a trio or so were the principal confessors. The net result of the whole was that the leader, instead of going forward into the ministry, ran into various socialistic and free-love heresies, on the basis of which he founded the Putney and Oneida communities, over the latter of which he now presides. Other sporadic outbursts of the distemper appeared here and there in the Presbyterian and Congregational communions, or among separatists and come-outers from them, these often uniting with the radicals or advanced reformers of other communions. This statement informs us that Noyes was not the only student at Newhaven at the time who lapsed into perfectionism, but had a few companions, or we may possibly suppose converts, that his perfectionism arose simply from an overstraining of the Taylorite doctrine of ability seems, however, from his own account of it, not altogether likely. And we may perhaps not improperly suspect that Atwater has merely included him in the general movement which he was describing, without stopping to inquire as to any special peculiarity he may have exhibited. He himself, in giving an account of his mental and spiritual growth, leading up to his conversion to perfectionism, has nothing to say of N. W. Taylor, but speaks rather of John Wesley as a guide and instructor. There was no doubt a Taylorite element in his thought, which came out especially in his teaching as to the first conversion, and as to the act of faith in general, concerning which he seems to have no other idea than that it is an act of our own, in our own native powers." but he certainly did not find the account of the perfection to which he supposed himself to have attained on that fateful twentieth of february eighteen thirty four in the sheer ability of his will to do what it chose and therefore if it chose to be perfect he referred it on the contrary directly to the effect of communion with christ the affinities of his doctrine in other words were less pelagian than mystical by the apprehension of the facts concerning christ and his saving work his victory over sin and death, the judgment of the prince of this world, and the spiritual reconciliation of God with man, he explains, believers are brought into fellowship with Christ's death and resurrection, and made partakers of his divine nature, and his victory over the evil one. The gospel which I had received and preached, he had written a few months earlier, speaking directly of what had happened on February the 20th, 1834, was based upon the idea that faith identifies the soul with Christ, so that by his death and resurrection the believer dies and rises again, not literally, nor yet figuratively, but spiritually, and thus, so far as sin is concerned, is placed beyond the grave, in heavenly places with Christ. He goes on to say that three months later he felt compelled to extend this doctrine, so as to make it include the redemption of the body as well as the soul, to abolish death as well as sin by participation in Christ's resurrection, so that, though we will pass through the form of death, sad concession to the appearance of things, we who are believers indeed will not really die. This doctrine, not only in form, but in substance, is extremely mystical. The effect of Noyes's proclamation of his perfectionism was, naturally, the loss of the countenance of the several religious organizations with which he was connected. He was dismissed from the divinity school and requested to withdraw altogether from the premises. The New Haven West Association, by which he had been licensed to preach the previous August, now recalled its license, 
on account of his views on the subject of Christian perfection. His church membership was still in the Congregationalist Church at Putney, and that church subsequently excluded him from fellowship for heresy and breach of covenant, supporting the charge apparently, however, by specifications which are drawn from his subsequent teaching. His real church home was, nevertheless, the Free Church at New Haven, and a vote was passed at once by that church requesting him to discontinue all communication with its members. He represents himself as feeling very isolated. I had now lost, he writes, my standing in the Free Church, in the ministry, and in the college. My good name in the great world was gone. My friends were fast falling away. I was beginning to be indeed an outcast, yet I rejoiced and leapt for joy. Sincerely I declared that I was glad when I got rid of my reputation. Some persons asked me whether I should continue to preach now that the clergy had taken away my license. I replied, I have taken away their license to sin, and they keep on sinning. So, though they have taken away my license to preach, I shall keep on preaching. The isolation complained of, however, had of course only relation to and meant no more than an enforced change in his associates. There were plenty of perfectionists within reach, and they of the most aggressive character. Noise was soon, if he were not already, in close intercourse with them, but there can be no doubt that the effect of the announcement of his new views was something of a surprise to him, and brought on a crisis in his career. He tells us that in conversation with his father one day, during the short interval between his conversion and his entering the seminary at Andover, he had propounded an interpretation of some scripture concerning which the older man uttered a warning. "'Take care,' said he, "'that is heresy.' "'Heresy or not,' rejoined the son, "'it is true.' But, warned the father, "'if you are to be a minister, you must think and preach as the rest of the ministers do. If you get out of the traces, they will whip you in.' "'Never,' rejoined the son hotly. Never will I be whipped by ministers or anyone else into views that do not commend themselves to my understanding as guided by the Bible and enlightened by the Spirit. Now that the crisis had come, the fighting spirit he had announced in this program did not fail him. He had so little thought of yielding to the admonitions of his mentors that he rather threw himself unreservedly into the conflict and seized the reins of leadership of the perfectionist party. I resolved, he says, to labour alone if necessary, to repair the breaches of our cause. The immediate fruits of his propaganda at New Haven were not altogether inconsiderable. He was able to count James Boyle himself among his converts, and the two together carried on for a time a vigorous literary campaign, including the publication from the summer of 1834, the first number bears the date of August 20, of a monthly journal called The Perfectionist. A number of the members of the Free Church also left the church and joined Noyes's party. Some converts were made also here and there, outside of New Haven, especially in New York. Every effort was made by Noyes to compact his followers into a definite sect with its own doctrinal platform and organization. It was in this that his peculiarity consisted. We have already had occasion to point out the extreme individualism of the perfectionists of his day. Noise was determined that he, at least, should not stand off by himself, but should be the head of a body which reflected his thought and obeyed his will. Everywhere he asserted his leadership, and although he was able to make it good with the completeness which he desired over only a small coterie, a certain deference appears to have been shown him in a surprisingly widely extended circle. Looking back upon these early days from a point of sight thirty years later, he tells us how they then appeared to him. The term perfectionist, he tells us, was applied to two classes who came out from the Orthodox churches at about the same period, 
they resembled each other in many respects both classes apprehending alike the great truth that the new covenant means salvation from sin the security of believers the substitution of grace for law and ordinances etc but there was yet this fundamental and important distinction one class appropriated these doctrines in the interest of individualism the other in the interest of unity one class scorned the idea of subordination and discipline the other joyfully received the idea of organization and was willing to submit to such discipline as organic harmony should require one class were all leaders a regiment of officers many of them were for a time eloquent champions of the new truths but the majority of them rushed into excesses which dishonoured the name of perfectionist the other class led by j h noyes have persevered in a course of self-improvement overcoming many obstacles and finally have developed a system of principles and a form of practical life which at least challenges the admiration of the world this formal difference organized or unorganized was not however the only thing which divided noise's followers from outlying perfectionists he was not only prepared to impose upon them his personal leadership but his personal doctrinal views also and young man in his twenty-fourth year as he was he had his doctrinal views even now in their formative ideas already in hand they were evolved from the two fundamental assertions to which he had now attained that christ's second coming took place in a d seventy and that no one living in sin is in the proper sense a christian working out the details of his system rapidly from these two underlying principles he as rapidly developed a very acute sense of the uniqueness of his new haven perfectionism consciousness of the points of agreement between his and other perfectionism grew faint the settled persuasion that he and he alone possessed truth took possession of him new haven perfectionism he writes in his journal is a new religion has affinity with no sect this side the primitive church as a system it is distinct from all the popular theologies and again new haven perfectionism is a doctrinal system standing by itself distinct from wesleyan new york and oberlin perfectionism as it is from non-resistance come outism etc perfectionism in other places than in putney so far as i know individual instances excepted has been mixed up with new york fanaticism boilism gatesism non-resistance etc his immediate purpose in these last words is not directly to assert doctrinal peculiarity although that is asserted but rather to repudiate any entanglement in the immoralities which persistent rumour was laying to the charge of perfectionists at southampton brimfield and other places where the indecency of spiritual wives was in practice it is worth while to turn aside to point out that one of the peculiarities by which noise separated himself from the perfectionists of the time was that he did in point of fact keep himself from complicity with this evil he makes it quite clear that it was in his mind a characteristic of what he calls new york perfectionists and he declares with the utmost emphasis that he himself never gave it the least countenance it was brought into new england from new york he tells us by simon lovett and chauncey e dutton who circulated at southampton brimfield and afterward at new haven itself as a sort of missionaries and though beginning in mere bundling passed on into actual licentiousness as for himself he asseverates that he had no connection with such things whether at brimfield rondout or new york except to reprove them it must not be imagined however that it was what we should call the immorality of the practice which kept noise thus free from this iniquity he speaks of it as licentiousness it is true but he fully shared the antinomianism of which it was the expression 
his chief concern was that the premature practice of this antinomianism should not prejudice the spread of the doctrine and then again the idea of spiritual wives did not go far enough to satisfy the demands of his antinomianism it still was held in the bonds of law he stood for promiscuity in principle and spiritual wives are just as incongruous to the principle of promiscuity as are legal wives they are spiritual dualism the only true foundation is that which jesus christ laid he writes when he said that in the good time coming there will be no marriage at all meaning not that celibacy will rule but promiscuity noise himself tells us that he had already adopted this theory of promiscuity in general in may eighteen thirty four that is to say on the very heels of his second conversion or conversion to perfectionism and at the very beginning of his propaganda for the formation of a perfectionist sect one gets the impression that it held from the first in his mind the place of an essential principle we might even say of the essential principle of his system while the whole doctrinal elaboration led up to it and prepared the way for it meanwhile however he kept it in the background putting it forward only tentatively and as men having absorbed the doctrinal preparation were able to bear it as he himself expressed it i moulded it protected it and matured it from year to year holding it always nevertheless as a theory to be realized in the future and warning all men against premature action upon it how he was accustomed to propagate it is no doubt fairly illustrated by his circumspect and veiled and yet perfectly clear presentation of it in a letter written in january eighteen thirty seven to his friend david harrison of meriden connecticut a letter which has acquired the name of the battle axe letter from the circumstance that harrison acting on a suggestion of noises who was eager to make quiet propaganda showed it to simon lovett who liked it and lovett showed it to elizabeth hawley who sent it to theophilus r gates who published the salient parts of it in his paper the battle axe august eighteen thirty seven and thus forced noise's hand and drew him for the first time to make public acknowledgment of this central element of his teaching in this letter he writes i will write all that is in my heart on one delicate subject and you may judge for yourself whether it is expedient to show this letter to others when the will of god is done on earth as it is in heaven there will be no marriage the marriage supper of the lamb is a feast at which every dish is free to every guest exclusiveness jealousy quarrelling have no place there for the same reason as that which forbids the guests at a thanksgiving dinner to claim each his separate dish and quarrel with the rest for his rights in a holy community there is no more reason why sexual intercourse should be restrained by law than why eating and drinking should be and there is as little occasion for shame in the one case as in the other god has placed a wall of partition between the male and the female during the apostasy for good reasons which will be broken down in the resurrection for equally good reasons but woe to him who abolishes the law of apostasy before he stands in the holiness of the resurrection the guests of the marriage supper may have each his favourite dish each a dish of his own procuring and that without the jealousy of exclusiveness i call a certain woman my wife she is yours she is christ's and in him she is the bride of all saints she is dear in the hand of a stranger and according to my promise to her i rejoice my claim upon her cuts directly across the marriage covenant of this world and god knows the end what is proclaimed here is complete promiscuity among the perfect those that are perfect are already living the resurrection life 
Noise could not repudiate his letter, and, with characteristic courage, declared his purpose thenceforth to publish the doctrine taught in it from the housetop. But with his equally characteristic caution, he kept it still in the background, and put in the front those doctrines which he appeared to value more and more, chiefly because they led up to this, but which, meanwhile, produced less scandal to talk about. A typical example of his dealing with the matter may be seen in the attempt which he makes in June 1839 to explain to a correspondent how his brand of perfectionism differed from that of the Methodists, Friends, and Asa Mahan. They all agree, he says, that perfect holiness is attainable in this life. But the perfectionists, that is his own sect, are discriminated from the others by certain primary and also by certain secondary tenets. The primary ones he enumerates thus. 1. Their belief that perfect holiness, when attained, is forever secure. 2. Their belief that perfect holiness is not a mere privilege, but an attainment absolutely necessary to salvation. Holding this belief, they, of course, deny the name of Christian to any other sects. 3. Their belief that the second coming of Christ took place at the period of the destruction of Jerusalem. On this third point of doctrine, he remarks, perfectionists insist upon this doctrine as the foundation of the two preceding. That is to say, it stood with them as the fundamental doctrine out of which all else is deduced. Out of it ultimately come, then, the secondary consequences, adherence to which also characterized perfectionists. These he enumerates as their antinomianism, their belief in a present resurrection, their peculiar views of the fashion of this world in respect of marriage, etc. The promiscuity for which perfectionists stand is not left here, it is true, unsuggested, but it is not obtruded. It is made a mere secondary result of their most fundamental doctrines. We perceive that noise, beginning in 1834 as a perfectionist among perfectionists, had rapidly drifted into an attitude of open antagonism to all perfectionists except that small number who were willing to receive from him a totally new doctrinal and ethical system, and to subject themselves to his unquestioned authority. He no longer disagrees with them only in standing for organization over against their atomizing individualism, nor indeed only in reprobating the tendency to cloak licentiousness under a show of close spiritual relationship which was showing itself among some of them. He declares them not really Christians, and he takes infinite satisfaction in pointing out his differences from them. He exhibits indeed a real predilection, not only for explaining the differences between the several varieties of perfectionist teaching and his own, but in general for pointing out the defects in the teaching of all whom he supposes might be imagined to have been in any way before him advocates of holiness as to the ordinary class of pietists in the carnal churches no doubt he considers it unnecessary to say anything they are confessors and professors of sin and therefore certainly not christians he adduces David Brainerd as a fair specimen of the more distinguished spiritualists of the churches, but thinks that enough has been said when it is said that his general experience is in essence a transcript of the second chapter of Romans, in which chapter is depicted, according to Noyes, a carnal, not a spiritual condition. It is evident, he says, that he was through life under conviction, panting after freedom from sin, but not reaching it. With Brainerd, he classes Edwards, Payson, and nearly all of those who have obtained the highest distinction for piety in the churches. James Brainerd Taylor's experience, as we have seen, he is willing to allow to have been of a higher grade. He came to the very borders of the gospel, he says, and saw clearly the privilege and glory of salvation from sin. He even confessed at times in a timid way that he was free from sin, and in doing so really condemned the root of sinning and repenting, 
which was the only experience allowed or known in the churches before him. His biographers, he asserts, suppress the clearest part of his testimony in relation to his own salvation. Nevertheless, he was only the John the Baptist of the doctrine of holiness, and, not knowing the gospel of the primitive church, was not born of God in the Bible sense. There is nothing better to say of the mystics, Madame Guion, William Law, they lose themselves in a spiritual philosophy. Law is the best, and his address to the clergy his best book. It is he who is the real father of the semi-perfectionism which the Methodists profess. The Methodists, like the Moravians and Shakers, and Asa Mahan and his companions with them, fail because they make holiness not the main point of religion, but an appendix to something else, and have denied or suppressed the most essential element of the new covenant, viz. security. Oberlin may stand as the illustration of a semi-perfectionism like this. It represents the stage a man comes to, when seeking holiness he has a gleam of it, and stops. We, he says in another place, differentiating his perfectionists from Wesleyans and Oberliners, we believe in the new covenant which enlists soldiers for life, or in other words, for perpetual holiness. We must not exaggerate the success of the propaganda for his perfectionism, which Noyes inaugurated at New Haven in the spring of 1834. Its success, although, as we have seen, not inconsiderable, was not great, and what was gained at the outset was soon largely lost. It was not long before James Boyle cast off allegiance, and the converts from the Free Church also returned to it. Noyes himself remained in New Haven after his adoption of perfectionism only a year. When he left it in February 1835, never to return except on occasional visits, his departure bore a somewhat dramatic appearance. Simon Lovett, he tells us, had come as a sort of missionary from the New York perfectionists to convert him to their ideas, but he, on the contrary, converted Lovett to some of his, especially to the New Haven doctrine of the Second Coming. Lovett took him, however, to Southampton and Brimfield, to make him acquainted with the groups of perfectionists which had sprung up in those places under the New York propaganda. He won his triumphs among them also, he tells us. Their leader, Tertius Strong, succumbed to my reasonings, he says, and soon the doctrine of the second coming, and what was called the eternal promise, were received on all sides with great enthusiasm. But he did not like what he saw. There was a seducing tendency to freedom of manners between the sexes, and there was a progressive excitement manifesting itself. So he ran away, leaving without notice on foot, through snow and cold below zero, to Putney, sixty miles distant. Thus he escaped complicity, perhaps participation, in one of the wildest follies of the perfectionist orgies, and at the same time found a new scene for his work, and a revised programme for his labours. He did not at once, indeed, find the new way. A period of uncertainty intervened in which he spent himself, endeavouring to repair the losses that had been suffered and to build up the broken fortunes of his party. He went from place to place on this errand. He was visited at Putney by old friends and fellow workers. Simon Lovett came on from Brimfield and joined him in his labours. Hard on his heels, Charles H. Weld came, fresh from Theophilus R. Gates, who, he said, was pure gold, with letters in his hands from a New York priestess, a Mrs. Carrington, full of censures of Noyes's carnality and worldly wisdom. Noyes describes this woman as a lady living somewhere in the state of New York who had recently been converted to perfectionism by Weld's labours and was soaring in the highest regions of ecstasy and boasting. He no longer had any sympathy with mere perfectionists. With Weld he finally broke, apparently violently and certainly permanently. 
he was meditating other things to which perfectionism was only a stepping-stone to these other things however perfectionism was a stepping-stone an indispensable stepping-stone and he now gave himself having the new vision before his eyes with all diligence to building it up in a form suitable for what was to come at this time he says i commenced in earnest the enterprise of repairing the disasters of perfectionism and establishing it on a permanent basis not by preaching and stirring up excitement over a large field as had been done at the beginning nor by labouring to reorganise and discipline broken and corrupted regiments as i had done at different places but by devoting myself to the particular instruction of a few simple-minded unpretending believers chiefly belonging to my father's family i had now come to regard the quality of the proselytes of holiness as more important than their quantity and the quality which i preferred was not that meteoric brightness which i had so often seen miserably extinguished but sober and even timid honesty this i found in the little circle of believers at putney and the bible school which i commenced among them in the winter of eighteen thirty six to eighteen thirty seven proved to be to me and to the cause of holiness the beginning of better days although the work in which noise now engaged himself took the form of a bible school neither his purpose nor his interest could any longer be described as theological or even religious that purpose and interest belonged to a transcended phase of his development his teaching in the bible school we are told sought chiefly to confirm the pupils in the new doctrines of salvation from sin and the second coming of christ and to draw corollaries from them resulting in the discovery of many other doctrines at variance with the dogmas of the divinity doctors and commentators this is an euphemistic way of describing what was really being done what was really being done was by the constant inculcation enforcement elaboration illustration of noise's fundamental doctrines of the emancipation of believers from all restrictions of law and their imminent entrance into the resurrection state in which the selfishness of exclusive marriage should be done away to supply his pupils with a religious basis for the practice of sexual promiscuity and to induce them to enter upon the practice of it without shock when the time seemed to him to have come to introduce it meanwhile he tells us emphatically and with some iteration that personally he walked in the ordinances of the law blameless until eighteen forty six and that also his face was set as a flint against laxity among the saints and again until eighteen forty six his whole preoccupation was however all this time with sex i got the germ of my present theory of socialism he writes in eighteen sixty seven meaning nothing other than his doctrine of promiscuity which he speaks of as if it carried with it his entire socialistic theory very soon after i confessed holiness that is in may eighteen thirty six as that germ grew in my mind i talked about it it took definite form in a private letter in eighteen thirty six it got into print without my knowledge or consent in eighteen thirty seven i moulded it protected it and matured it from year to year holding it always nevertheless as a theory to be realised in the future and warning all men against premature action upon it i made ready for the realisation of it by clearing the field in which i worked of all libertinism and by educating our putney family in male continence and criticism when all was ready in eighteen forty six i launched the theory into practice of course noise for that was his custom rationalized his preoccupation with sex that was he said his necessary preoccupation after doctrine had been displaced of 
the first thing to be done he writes more than once in an attempt to redeem man and reorganize society is to bring about reconciliation with god and the second thing is to bring about a true union of the sexes in other words religion is the first subject of interest and sexual morality the second in the great task of establishing the kingdom of god on earth bible communists are operating in this order their main work from eighteen thirty four to eighteen forty six was to develop the religion of the new covenant and establish union with god their second work in which they are now especially engaged is the laying the foundation of a new state of society by developing the true theory of sexual morality when this passage was written however say in eighteen forty eight noise and his followers were not engaged in developing the true theory of sexual morality if by that is meant working it out theoretically that had been the work of the preceding period they were now putting that developed theory of sexual morality into practice and only in this practical sense developing it nor must the general terms in which the statement is thrown be permitted to throw the reader off of the real line of thought which is being followed it is of course perfectly true that the two great objects of human regard are religion and morality and the two matters of first consideration in the establishment of a sound social order are our relations to god and to one another since man has been made male and female it may very properly be said also that after religion the family is the foundation stone of society precisely what noise was engaged in doing however was destroying the family the problem he had set himself was nothing less than the reconstitution of human society without the family it was precisely because of this that in the laying of the foundation of a new state of society he required first of all to develop a new theory of sexual morality a theory of sexual morality that is to say which dispensed with the family the theory which he developed was nothing other than that of sexual promiscuity prudently regulated no doubt in its practice in the interest of the community but not only distinctly but even dogmatically insisted upon the development of this theory and its inculcation to his followers were actually his main work for ten years before eighteen forty six its practical application was equally actually his main work for the remainder of his active life his mind was preoccupied thus for a whole half of a century with the details of the sexual life the religious occupation was the past the berean which was published in eighteen forty seven but is made up of articles reprinted from the periodicals published from eighteen thirty four on is its monument the economic experiment on which he ultimately embarked was dependent on the narrower matter of sex relations in which he saw its foundation stone for all communism is wrecked on the family and he perceived with the utmost clearness that he must be rid of the family if he was to have communism accordingly he constantly speaks of his social theory when he means nothing more than his sexual theory and his book called bible communism published in eighteen forty eight was nothing more than an elaborate plea for the practice of sexual promiscuity under the name of entire community that is to say community not only in goods but also in women End of john humphrey Noyes and his bible communists the beginnings by b b warfield